Welcome to Beer and a Movie, the podcast where we combine two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and moving. Ooh, and movies. <laughs> Hi, Joe. Let me try that. I, I, I had a Joe start there. All right. Beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I guess I'm already doing that here at the beginning of the episode. I am one of your co-hosts. My name is Dave Gurney. I am here with... And if you're going to call it a Joe moment, you flubbed the line, but you looked incredible. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Joe Hilliard. And Carlos Cooper. And boys, we, we have some business to attend to this week, as we always do. Um, but I feel like we probably need to wet our whistles before we start squawking about the movies. Yeah, some long-awaited business, some much-anticipated business, I would say. Um, and in in the tradition of the last few weeks, with us, uh, you know, having slightly different beers, I guess I'll start. We usually start on this uh, in this time zone, and then in the second half, we we move, we move we, to distant time zone. We do it backwards. But I thought we're watching this movie right uh, by a director who we love. Um, his first film in eight years, if I'm not mistaken, right? First feature. Sounds right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the great Canadian imports, you know, uh, this man that we are going to discuss. So I figured we would honor our director's heritage and drink Molson Golden pre year. Uh, this is a Canadian lager, correct? Did I fuck that up? No, I got it right. Right. Yep. Toronto, Canada. Uh, and yeah, that's all I got on this. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's in a green bottle, so, you know, they don't give a fuck. And <laughs> so there's not really like a whole lot to say about it, uh, but it's a top, beer up at the top of the label. Uh, thanks Carlos for bringing me this specifically brewed for the unique flavor of an ale and a lager. Okay. Ooh. So Molson Coors two weeks in a row. <laughs> yep. Two weeks in a oh, row. That's funny. I, intentionally though, it's got the maple leaf on the fucking uh, yeah. on the label. So, you know, it's legit. I mean, if I, all I really need right now is a, is like a plate of poutine. Uh, oh, I'd be really kicking. That'd be tasty. I'm sure. Um, well, what a great tie-in you've picked, Carlos. Uh, I'm I'm so close to Canada right now, and yet uh, my tie-in is 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 a little further removed. It's from Maine. Surprise, surprise! I've been I've been doing a lot of Maine beers while, while I've been away. Um, <laughs> this one is from a new brewery to me, though. It is Bellflower Brewing out of Portland, Maine. I think they've only been open about a year right now. It was recommended to me by the beer steward at a great shop in Portland called The Beer Cellar, which I would recommend to anybody who's swinging through Portland, Maine. They actually have a location in Gorham, Maine as well. This is an India Pale Ale. It's called The Sun, and it's actually paired with another version of this IPA called The Moon. So in this first half, I'm going to have The Sun, and spoilers, folks, I'm going to have The Moon in the second half. Um, no great tie-in name-wise, but I'm excited to try this where the basic concept is they're using the same base on each beer, main grown pilsner, wheat malt, caramel malt um, as that base, and then using different hop strains uh, to kind of give it a different profile. So this first one that I'm having is Strata and Idaho 7 hops. Interesting. So you said it was an IPA? Yes. 
Okay, but the base is a Pilsner? Well, they're using malt? some Pilsner malt. They're using Pilsner malt, wheat malt, and caramel malt. Okay, lots lots happening. I, I think so. It's it's pretty pale, you pale. know, for an India pale. Um, it doesn't look super caramely or malty. We'll, we'll see. I'm encouraged. I'm excited. This Molson could... Pretty hazy. Nice. Well, th- this Molson's the opposite of hazy. It's crystal clear, very, very transparent, and uh, I'm sure it's going to drink nice and easy. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, you know, some things that don't go down nice and easy for many <laughs> are uh, the latest David Cronenberg film. You know, in our time together, over 400... How many movies have we done? I should know that before anybody Over else. 400, yeah, for sure. Over 400 films that we've uh, done here. We have only done one David Cronenberg film. And a, a, a crime of the past. Sure, sure. Yes, huge As, crime of the past. Although in um, we paired it with his son, Brandon Cronenberg's film, Possessor. Yeah. And when we said, let's do one of his father's films, the one we all kind of came up with was Videodrome, which many people find to be their favorite or, you know, highly beloved David Cronenberg film. Long live the new flesh. Exactly. Uh, Certainly one of the most provocative and uh, memorable. I feel like if people see Videodrome on yeah. cable, or they, it's going to stick with them. Yeah, sure. And then so if you throw into that, you know, uh, help me with them. Uh, the Fly, uh, the, the body horror films that he's kind of, was kind of his stamp until he quit doing that around 1999 with Existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crash, I think you'd put in that category. Yeah, that was 95. The Brood. The Brood is, I mean, that's big time. Yeah. Um, Scanners, of course. Yeah. Um, But in 1999, he did Existence, which was his last body horror film, started doing, um, I don't know who all saw these. I saw them all. Uh, History of Violence, Eastern Promises. Mm -hmm. But now in 2022, it came out just a a couple months ago. It made its debut at the Cannes Film Festival where it got a six minute standing ovation. People, I think, just excited to see David Cronenberg back in the mix. Uh, It's called Crimes of the Future. And it's been available for a $20 rental on VOD for several weeks, but we kept finding new releases as awesome as Thor to do (laughs) instead of, you know, Crimes of the Future. But this week we are here. We're going to do a double feature of Cronenberg to write those crimes of the past. Okay, I'm going to do my best, guys. If I go off the rails too much, it's a very difficult film, I think, to synopsize uh, um, in a, in a uh, quickly. But you've got Viggo Mortensen and Leah Sadu playing performance artists in the not too distant future where you have begun to see evolutionary anomalies amongst the human race. It's a very bleak society. It's a very, there's not a lot of growth. You don't see ever any trees or grass. It's, it looks like this kind of dystopian type future and their body, uh, their uh, art installations are that Viggo Mortensen is growing aberrant organs, new organs that have nothing to do with the human biological function. And they find them and they have these different machines that help him live. These A bed that's got tentacles that go into his hands and a, a chair that repositions his body at all times while he's eating food to try to, this, this blend of organic, uh, mechanical and human function uh, at all times. So, 
they find they tattoo the the uh, organs and then uh, to a packed house of sophisticates drinking champagne in high fashion they remove the organs in this kind of like sar- sar- sarcophagus type structure that's you know uh, aptly named the sark yeah um and the film is really and there's so much more story than that that we could maybe I'll let some of you guys dive into some of the pieces, including a child that is killed by his mother because he eats plastic early in the film. And that turns into a whole plot detail, a government organization that is newly designed to uh, categorize and, and, and make sure that all aberrant organs are known about so they can track what evolution is happening in our society. Um, And, and, and on and on and on. Um, it's really, in my opinion, a study of evolution. Like that's, I, I have not done a lot of research after the fact to try to come up with the, what's it all about of it. I really was looking forward to this conversation to do a little bit of that. Very beautifully shot. Uh, cinematography is incredible. The effects work is incredible. Lots of close-ups of bodies being cut and opened up and guts inside and many other things. Oh, I should also mention before I turn it over to one of you guys, pain in the future is being desensitized. In other words, when these surgeries are occurring, there's no anesthetic, but no one's wincing in pain. Uh, There's no, it seems like thought of sterilization or infection. It's just kind of surgeries are done anywhere and everywhere. Any cocktail party, someone might be getting cut and sliced on in mm-hmm. the absence of pain would the way we, because pain is a warning signs for our body. You don't do that anymore. You're going to hurt yourself. But in the absence of that, will we hurt ourselves? I think is another critical piece of the, of the film. Did I leave out any major details besides a guy getting killed with two uh, drills to the back of the head, which I thought was kind of cool. No, I think, uh, I think they said something about like viral infections are like obsolete as well, or like don't exist anymore or something like that. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, there is certainly a lot going well, on. There's a lot of detail tucked into the dialogue. You got to really pay attention. Yeah. It's a dense film. There's a lot of world building going on in it. And yeah, I mean, it's, I, David, do you have anything you want to add before we really start sinking our teeth into this? Because it's just, I mean, in terms of details to like explain the story. No, I think, Joe, actually, you did a pretty good job laying out the basic premise here and that, you know, at, at the center being this, you know, performance art couple who are sort of making their commentary on what they think of this thing that's happening to humanity is. Um, but are being sort of forced to question that as well, because they realize there are these groups who are sort of underground advocating for different ways of looking at the you know essentially Vigo Mortensen's character is trying to discard these organs he's harvesting you know he's doing these performances where they're cut out of him and taken away and not used and there are people who he comes to find who believe that they shouldn't be removed necessarily and that there's maybe something else going on there that's a very very good point because if this is a study of evolution then that is the critical question if the body is producing an organ that no that is not needed for its current systems is it best to leave it alone and see what this evolution is going to occur what evolution is going to occur here 
or should it be removed like a cancer, like a, like an invading body? And you're right. Vigo Mortensen goes to the latter. The subplot with the child eating plastic that kind of looks like a throwaway shocking thing that occurs at the beginning when his mother smothers him with a pillow after watching him eat a plastic garbage can, calling him a monster. Well, the father comes back into play and it turns out that that he is the leader, I guess, of an entire system of people that are attempting to use surgery to evolve themselves into being able to eat hum- uh, plastic waste and other kind of like trash. Because in a world like we saw in Idiocracy recently, we even commented that it looked a lot like Wally, just trash everywhere. Would humans evolve into being able to use it to survive what, rather than it being the downfall of society. So there's a, you're right. There's some conflicting kind of philosophy there. Yeah. So, I mean, other than that, I, I wouldn't fill in, but if we're, let's get into talking about this film. Okay. I, I, we already said this love David Cronenberg. I mean, this is something that we've, we've talked about on the show when we did Videodrome. Um, and I think all of us have some degree of experience with his other films, even outside the body horror stuff that he's done over the years. But this is the kind of celebrated return to this genre that he or subgenre that he really helped define. Right. I mean, he he is if, if you're going to describe body horror to anybody, you're more likely than not going to point them to some David Cronenberg films for good reason. Um, and so he's in there doing it, as Joe said, with good effects work, um, with really kind of interesting thought provoking premises this is a weird one folks i'm i'm not going to take you know i'm not going to try to convince anybody that this is a film for a family movie night it isn't but this is a thoughtful interesting body horror film from the master of body horror and i can't imagine um a better return to form i lo- i love everything about this film i really really enjoyed it it's yeah it's i mean it's interesting um because Cronenberg really has this um, like ongoing interest between uh, humanity and its relationship with uh, technology and the uh, development and like progression of technology. And also this kind of um, fascination with, taking a look at humans and, you know, culture and wondering, posing questions of like, at what point do we begin to strip away our own humanity? You know, at one point does our, at at what point does our uh, development, whether it's technological or in this case, kind of both technological and evolutionary, um, and our growth as a species or race or whatever begin to um, counteract everything that we thought we knew about what it means to be a human being. Um, And that's, I mean, I think that's really on display in this one. Absolutely. I mean, you have the mother drawing the line right at the beginning of the film, calling the child a monster, you know, rendering it inhuman. Like you have gone beyond humanity here. You're no longer part of my same species even though i gave birth to you i feel no connection to you this very stark rendering of that and then the rest of the film i think showing you these various relationships that people have to their bodies and and the way that they work and this potential new 
you know, significant evolution in terms of diet that that could be game changing in terms of, you know, uh, almost a way for uh, man's biology, human humanity's biology to outwit the um, the failings of humanity. Right. That they, polluting the planet and doing all of this stuff, that there's this way that sort of biology overcomes the the stupid intellect or, or the, the inferior intellect of hu- humanity as a species. It's fascinating. I mean, this, these are deep, thought-provoking questions um, that you rarely see, you know, uh, explored this way unless you're in a David Cronenberg film. You're, you got it exactly right, Carlos. It's, you know, humanity um, existing as sort of uh, an animal species versus technology and what we're able to do with it and how much it sort of has control over us, how much we have control over it. These are all at play, and you're seeing these really interesting struggles between these different parties who are viewing these things, these evolutionary events, and the technologies that allow them to be sort of manipulated, um, seeing them from different vantages, right? And and as Joe put it, in this really stark setting where this is dystopian, right? I mean, th- everything is crumbling. One of the things I think that I love about Cronenberg is that he'll take these very advanced kind of science fiction elements, like a future where there are these chairs that can perform surgery relatively easily and openly for an audience, and you could have it as like part of an art gallery or you know an art installation. And he'll put them into the most decrepit, sort of like falling apart surroundings, buildings that look like they haven't been renovated in like 40 years, just like sitting there falling apart. It's, it's an interesting sort of contrast between like cutting edge technology in these settings that sort of make it all seem very pedestrian and kind of just run down in old hat, right? It gets you to take this stuff for granted. You know, we haven't even talked about kind of like the erotic nature of the film either. Uh, the idea oh, yeah. that uh, Kristen Stewart, who is a assistant to those, that government agency that's cataloging all the new organs, who's got an interest in the in everything going on, if that's going to be her chosen profession. Uh, after um, Vigo Mortensen, the, the, the full kind of art installation that we see where they've been tracking this new organ inside of him, they've gone inside to tattoo it, which is required by law, if you're following the law. And then during the art installation where it is removed from him, and then he's sewn back up or he's cauterized shut, then they put that organ in a little like a, a jar of formaldehyde next to him while he lounges, you know, in repose after this artistic ordeal. She comes up and asks him, it's in the trailer, uh, surgery is the new sex. And he says, do we need a new sex? Well, later she seduces him and they're kissing old fashioned kissing guys. <laughs> and he says, I'm not really good at the old sex anymore. Rather, he goes on his own away from apart from his artistic partner to get a zipper put into his abdomen so that for easy access, it's utilitarian. And when his partner who they clearly have some kind of like sexual chemistry and ship, they're not like a husband and wife and it's not really uh, presented that way. Um, Like a utilitarian almost uh, outside of their artistic pursuits. Uh, opens up the zipper and then kneels down and like performs like 
oral sex on this new wound. Yeah. Be careful. Don't lose too much fluid or what. I can't remember exactly. The don't line, let it spill out. Don't let something. it spill. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now here's, now here's <clears> what <throat> I have. This is something that kind of didn't really strike me until the very end of the film. The eroticism and... makes you uncomfortable. So you had to quickly change the subject. <laughs> no, uh, no, I, no, I do want to talk about that a little bit more, but because you mentioned the zipper thing, mm-hmm. There's this like inner beauty pageant that he enters into, and that's why the zipper is installed. Correct? Like that's the- yeah, that's yeah. Although that that was one of the weirder parts of a weird film. But that doesn't really amount to much, right? Am I mistaken? No. Okay, it just kind well, of it seemed like a ruse on the part of the guy who also ran that o- or co-ran that office, right? Yeah, yeah. Was what it was that what it was? What was the ruse that? I don't think there was any competition. He just wanted to see more Vigo Mortensen or something. There, there was something. I thought that he was using Vigo Mortensen's celebrity because he's a celebrity in this world. Right. To shine Attract- on the idea of we need to be tracking our organs, people. Yeah, I, that that might be the closest to the best interpretation there. Yeah, that that might be the only flaw of the film is that there's the, that kind of like really. I mean, and like David Cronenberg isn't. Uh, a storyteller that's known for tying up loose ends. <laughs> he, he doesn't ever really wrap a bow on everything, but I think that is a particularly egregious, like, uh, insert this thing that never has, like, any kind of resolution or, like, impact on the storyline in a significant way other than this, other than, I guess, the progression of the sexual nature of the absence of pain. Yeah. Like the sur- surgical kind of thing that's going on, which is a really interesting part of it. And I think something that's kind of like being explored as well is like, I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with this or how I feel about this. It seems like kind of like an odd, I mean, it, anyway, it makes sense to me in some way, but I reject it in others, but that, you know, people say, you know, you can't ever really appreciate the good times if you don't go through bad times. Right. You know, you say stuff like this without before. valleys, there are no mountaintops, there are no mountaintops. And so I guess and so I think there is some kind of exploration of like, how do we interpret or experience pleasure in the absence of pain? Like if we never feel these negative things, what does that mean about our ability to feel like the euphoric mm-hmm. of like human existence or whatever, uh, which is. Well, and I think that's it. That's a good point you're making. And I think that kind of speaks to, you know, I don't think it's a big stretch to say that the the style of performance in this film is pretty interesting in that I think in Cronenberg is somewhat known for this, right? There's a very deadpan kind of delivery, the affectless, these characters don't really get too excited or too upset or too. We'll certainly talk about that later. Yeah, but I think it's appropriate because they aren't feeling pain. They don't have those kind of extremes of emotion. It seems like that, uh, you know, people in our reality have. Uh, Whereas though Viggo Mortensen, because he does experience some kind of pain, he has a different way of expressing himself. And it is such a weird performance, right? I mean, did did you either or both of you kind of stop and just kind of take in the way he's like sort of contorting his body constantly and moving it around i mean some of it is aided by cgi where like he's in the chair and it's moving around and stuff with him but even when it's just him in a scene and he's standing there like in his uh you know cloak or whatever and all that just the way he's carrying himself the way he's speaking this kind of like way he speaks from the back of his throat at time 
it it is quite a performance. Yeah, it's it's as if he has trouble with his digestive system. He's constantly, <clears throat> you know, he's con- well, his throat is closed, right? Is what it is. So it, it's it, yes, his performance is incredible. I thought that. Um, oh, I, so is Kristen Stewart's performance? Yeah, I thought. She's I thought really everyone good. did a great job in this film. I, I thought that. Uh, I I couldn't stop thinking about this movie after I saw it. I, I still have a few hours left on my 48 hour rental and I might go watch it again before it expires because he, like I said, there is, and this is a Cronenberg thing. The fly I think is the best of his just grotesque horror movies. But if you stop to think about the subtext of the fly, then he's telling you much more here. This to me didn't have it's certainly about body and it's certainly horror uh, and the close-ups a lot of surgery a lot of slicing open a lot of opening up the a lot of internal organs abdominal cavity to see everything inside of it It, it, it's uncomfortable to watch just from a personal it's i really don't like to watch that kind of thing but he's telling you so much more here subtextually and i think it's very very layered and very very mature and by mature i mean it's the kind of film that a 79 year old Cronenberg is going to give us that with at the height of his kind of like cinematic powers the quality of the special effects here I I can like to think that when you watch this movie in 20 years it doesn't feel dated the way that a video drum might because we're not watching cathode ray tube televisions any longer you know the technology was invented for the film so it might be timeless in that way I, I thought this film was pretty pretty incredible but I could understand anyone that does not like it because it's uncomfortable to watch many times. Yeah. I didn't watch it with Kylie because I knew she would hate it. Um, But I, I do agree with your sentiment about it being a mature film, because I think that a lot of the grotesque nature of it and the kind of shocking moments of it aren't done for the sake of that they're done in service of a, larger like idea or commentary or even just mm-hmm. like question asking in general about things yeah. like, and, and, and so, you know, he knows that he can think of some pretty fucked up stuff well, and he doesn't just do it for the sake of doing well, it. Well, no, the context and, of the film is that without pain and with this um, audience requirement to see people stretch their bodies and as far as possible, there's, you got performance performance artists in addition to Vigo Mortensen and his partner that are doing all kinds of wacky shit, like mm-hmm. sewing their eyes and mouth shut and covering themselves up with ears, but dancing and da- and and so but the ears aren't listen. functional, so non right non functional ears, yeah, right ears everywhere, ears on your forehead, ears on your knees, ears on your elbows. Um, but God, that the special effects were incredible on that thing. It did not look like a bunch of rubber ears pasted to a guy. It, it looked fantastic. No, I, I mean, I mean, everything was super believable and like the, the, all the set design and the design of all of the different like apparatus that are used throughout it, whether it's the bed or the Sark yeah. or the chair, uh, all that kind of stuff is just like so well done. Um, also another thing that I just have to kind of get off my chest a little bit because, you know, we, we come on this show every week and we try to speak eloquently and intelligently about films and we try to bring a modest amount of research to the table of like, you know, 
context of the film or the filmmaker or their past work uh, actors and actresses that appear in films uh, who have, you know, done other notable work in the past. Um, but not all, not all of us are the film scholars that maybe we try to present ourselves as. And I will tell you why, because when I saw that Leah Sadu was in this movie, mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, I can't wait to see her in this. Like I, I, I am really excited to see her in this context. And the reason that I was excited was because when I saw her in the French dispatch, I was like, Oh, that's, this is amazing. Like uh, a, a young up and coming actress in a big, like marquee kind of film, her career is going to take off, come to find out she's like almost 40 and has been working for a long time. <laughs> And something I just had no fucking idea about. Like, I know of the film Blue is the Warmest Color, but I never saw it. And so, like, I never saw her in it, as a obviously, as a result of that. And I never saw Spectre because I was out on the Bond movies by that point. But, like, I really just felt like such a fucking dumbass when I looked her up on IMDb, having thought after seeing The French Dispatch, like, oh, look at this, like, 21-year-old, like, young actress, like, really about to break out. <laughs> into the mainstream <laughs> it was so ridiculous i looked her up and i was like she's 37 what the fuck is going on here uh, <laughs> so we all have our moments where you know she's we, in a couple sure. on films she was in midnight in paris and um she was in midnight in paris i saw that movie yeah. and i don't remember her from it i mean i saw it kind of a smaller part and you know i saw it once in theaters when it came out so i haven't yeah one time but anyway that was something but i i thought well, she I, is primarily she is primarily in french films so you, you I know you, i i noticed that when looking at her filmography as well so i gave myself a small pass but like blue is the warmest color was such a big thing for a second uh, it was especially when it was on netflix and everybody was like fuck have you seen this movie it's crazy <laughs> uh it you know and it's this you know there's so i mean there's a lot going on in that film i'm sure well i'm not sure but maybe we'll talk about it another time but it was just one that i didn't see because it was three hours long and i was like who's got the time you know uh, well, and i wasn't i think we're right for a leah sadu episode is what you're saying i i mean i would i would not be offended by that at all because i think i'd loved her in french dispatch like i just said i thought she was great in this i thought she gave a very um concerningly seductive performance i mean which is kind of like the point of a lot of what she's doing, I mean, she's this artist. It's very, you know, provocative and they're trying to explain, I mean, the, the conversations, and this is another, I mean, even just another layer of this film is that the film is itself about art in a way too. I mean, there's these really like robust conversations between characters about art and what it means to create art and what qual qualifies as art versus what just qualifies as like, I don't know, like just doing like is just doing surgery in and of itself art and if it's in mm -hmm. front of people or is this or have to be some other kind of context or exploration or search for meaning or like emotional resonance or I mean, there are these really eloquent conversations about the nature of art in this movie that I also found incredibly thought provoking and compelling. She's obviously a huge part of that because her and Saul Tenser, the Viggo Mortensen character, are like at the center of that. And, and not just at the center of the conversations, but in the world at the center of valuable art, because like when Saul is at 
the guy, the performance with all the ears and stuff like that, someone comes mm-hmm. up to him and is basically just saying, this is not really worthwhile because the ears aren't even functional. And this person is better at dancing than conceptual art, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah. It was, um, it was a fascinating movie. Yeah. But one more thing I wanted to say in regards to Joe, what you had said earlier about, um, you know, you can understand people not liking this or like, you know, whatever. Sure. There is a scene uh, where a woman is having her face like cut up and the Caprice character is there played by Lisa. Um, Caprice is very like turned on by this, but also like motivated in a way to like augment herself as right. well. And there's all that stuff going on. But after the like performance is done, similar to when they had their performance and there was the organ in a jar sitting next to them, there was a similar moment at this later performance where uh, there was still like stuff going on during like the reception kind of thing. And one of the things going on was someone having their foot carved into oh, yeah, yeah, it. And you could hard. hear the scraping watch. of the bone. And look, we've talked, I mean, we do all horror October every year, right? We've seen a lot of horror films. Mm-hmm. We've seen a lot of films with shocking violence and things like that. And so you know, a desensitized or however you want to phrase it. Like it's something that we've kind of come to be able to deal with and film to a certain degree, especially in America where violence is more acceptable than sex. But when I say that my fucking skin crawled, oh God, yeah. hearing the scraping of the bone, that was the moment where I was watching it, where I was just like, if there was ever any doubt in my mind that Kylie could sit through this movie, it is absolutely gone. Now there's and no that was like way. a throwaway scene. It, yeah. It was a throwaway right. scene and it was so visceral. A weird thing in the background. It's a weird thing. And, it, and that's, I mean, and I think that's the thing about maybe this stage in Cronenberg's career. Cause I don't know that I can say about, say it about his entire filmography, but at least in this film in particular, there isn't like a wasted second of it. You know, like everything that happens in this movie, every frame is like so intentional and yeah, thought so out and maturity, put, to, and put yeah, exactly. Out. And put together and in service and which of course he, it would be hard for, you know, him to make a fulfilling film and not do that, I guess, because there is so much world building that has to happen in an hour and 40 minutes or whatever. But I just was so happy that we finally saw yeah. it. And yeah, I, I, and again, like when I was looking after I watched the film, we're going to talk about in the second half. I had looked back at his filmography because I was like, oh, what was his first his first film? And he started way earlier than I remembered. It was like 68, 69 was his first feature film, Crimes of the Future, 1970. Yeah. A completely separate film with the same title. Title is um, the only thing they share, as I understand yeah, it. Yes, exactly. But I but I went back and I was looking at all these things like Rabid, Shivers, like movies I've heard of that I've never seen. Right. And then and then the part where I really kind of like was beating myself up was like, as you mentioned earlier, history of violence, Eastern promises, like he has a lot of films with Viggo Mortensen that I've never seen. And I was almost like, do I have to, do I have to close the shop this week and just like watch all these movies? I mean, there's, cause there's so much that he's done that I haven't seen. And every time I finish one of his movies, my immediate thought is just like, I have to go back and watch every single thing that this man has done. Well, I just appreciate you guys allowing me to come up with our film in the second half where we get to see David Cronenberg act in Jason X coming up next. Now let's talk <laughs> about these beers. <laughs> <laughs> see, my favorite Cronenberg performance is uh, 
Nightbreed, Clive Barker's Nightbreed. Oh, yeah, Have you ever watched yeah. that? He's yeah. really good in that. You're glad we're here today. Yes, but also I recommend this movie. Oh, <laughs> I mean, like, oh, heartily, heartily. No, but I, but I mean, I recommend it. Like, I would, I would try to convince somebody that maybe will you put off by the trailer to watch it. Will you try to get Kylie to watch it someday? I will, but I don't think that I'll succeed. Um, but I think that I just think that if you can, well, like, context- I'm with you, Carlos. There's so few filmmakers who even try to point to these things. There, so few storytellers. Period. Whether you're talking about novelists, uh, you know, abstract art, whatever, who can really push these buttons and get you thinking in these ways. I think this is a very uh, important film for people to check out for those reasons. It's it it's just a singular kind of thing that very few people do, and nobody does it as well as him using the body horror thing to provoke these kind of questions. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, gotta, I mean, that's just what it is. I yeah. got to say this as the resident logger hater. Mm-hmm. I had to go. I had to do some Googling. Yeah. This is a mixture of ale and lager. Um, it's a blend. Okay. According to the quick internet searching that I did, I was trying to get even more into it, but I, I couldn't find more, much more than that. And I got to tell you, I've recently come to the uh, this this conclusion. As a professional beer reviewer, patreon.com slash beer movie podcast. Uh, you, My guy. <laughs> I cannot, I can no longer with good conscience say that my preference for ale is a detestment of lager. I've got to dive in or maybe tiptoe in. And this Molson Golden which yes is big beer and yes, you know, I, I, I don't want to buy it because I don't want to support that machine. <laughs> I might have to buy a six pack of this. I enjoyed this so, so much crisp, clean 5%. The ABV is not knocking me over the head. A nice blend of the two styles to where you're not like in that lager. I always say rice, but I don't think there's probably any rice used to make this beer territory. Molson Golden for a macro. If I saw this at a party and it was this or Bud Light, I'm going for this every time. I I, I enjoyed it. I mean, uh, there were two Canadian options when I went. There was this one in Moosehead. And I've had a Moosehead before. I'll be at a Lightstruck one and I, I didn't care for it. So I figured I would take, I would roll the dice on this one. Uh, and I, I am not upset about it. I think I made the right decision. I think, yeah, I think you did too. Thank you for bringing it. How's that IPA? Well, I'll get to that, but I I think that's fascinating because I learned something here with Joe. And you're right. This Molson Canadian is a blend of ale and lager. And I can't even think of a beer that we've had on the show before that has done that. So there's something going on there. I I just had had never realized that before. Um, For me... This IPA, guys, oh my God. I feel like I'm fine. I'm I'm making up for last week where uh Carlos had those amazing beers that Daniel had shared. Um, and and here I am drinking this super fresh hazy IPA from from the area of the country where hazy IPAs were kind of uh launched and it is just as citrusy and tropical as I would want it to be in my dreams. Uh, you know, I'm getting notes of like sort of strawberry, even maybe even some mango papaya. It's this is a very, very good hazy IPA. 
Um, the Sun from Bellflower Brewing in Portland, Maine, highly, highly recommended. And, and I have a feeling that most of their beers are that way. I'm going to get the chance to try another variation of this in the second half. Looking forward to it. Well, you know that your charge on these travels is to bring us eat is to bring Carlos one each of everything that you've had on the show so far. Go ahead. Right. <laughs> put that on me. Uh, but yeah, so like we've referenced a number of times throughout the first half of this episode, we are diving back into the Cronenberg well uh, in the second half of the episode, but going much farther back in time, looking at a much younger uh, artist, filmmaker, storyteller um, in the second half of the episode when we return. here we go we are going for round two of our cronenberg extravaganza our cronenberg spectacular our cronenberg chronicle um and you know we're we're very eager to get back into the discussion i even reference some of my um analysis of this film in the first half if you caught it but uh first obviously before anything glasses must be moistened david what you got well we know what you got but tell us yeah i already i already told you in the first half that i'm going to be having that other version of the sun ipa that i had from bellflower brewing this one is called the moon it is another india pale ale same same malt bill mangrone pilsner wheat malt caramel malt but instead of the idaho seven and the strata hops that we had with the uh the first beer this one we have motuika and nelson savin so which i believe are both new zealand hops so oh so i think we're going this would have been better for when we were talking about waititi shoot Really fucked it up, David. Yeah. Missed the tie-in. Well, I'm going to drink it anyway, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever you use your psychic abilities to make a head explode, chances are you're going to see <laughs> some brain. Yeah. yeah. With our third uh, installment of brains on the show, Drecker Brewing becomes a member of the Five Timers Club. Wow, David, I hate to do this without you because I think it was you that put brains as one of your top five beers of the year that we did one of the, the first. Yeah, yeah, that was their passion fruit, orange guava, double fruit smoothie sour uh, in episode 94, episode 111. We did uh, the blueberry raspberry. This is their double fruit smoothie sour mango, strawberry, pineapple, coconut. Carlos, I hope you rolled it correctly. It's one of those that you've got to roll. And it says it's a, a smoothie sour. It's got big chunks of delicious fruit, beautiful color. But it also says on the can here, serve cold. Well, guess what, boys? At our local beer emporium, I bought it hot. But yep. it's only a few months old, so hopefully it doesn't have too much of a problem of degradation. Here's a funny story. I went and bought some beer today for the show, not knowing that Joe was going to be buying some beer today for the show. And I also bought some Drecker. Well, they would hit the five timers club either way. Then good. But I did not buy the brains. Well, I thought it was a perfect tie in for the movie we'll be discussing today. 
Carlos, tell us all about it. It's scanners. Yeah, we're, so we're talking about scanners. Um, this is a film that um, was preceded by The Brood, uh, another body horror film, and that Mondo released the soundtracks for together. One side, you got the soundtrack from The Brood. One side, you got from Scanners. But this comes in 1981. You got that sweet Shore score, Howard Shore really yeah. coming in and doing the damn thing on it. But... Um, Essentially, it's not like in the future necessarily, I guess, but it's in a world where there is a segment of the population that has some uh, telepathic kind of ability is known and they're known as scanners. Um, and there is a particular scanner known as Daryl Revick, played by Michael Ironside, who is recruiting uh, other scanners into his underground kind of organization and is proving to be somewhat of a menace. Uh, when you watch the tra- <laughs> when you watch the trailer for this movie on YouTube, it is just like a, a scene from the film. <laughs> That's all that it is. Is the like first scene where um, the guy in the glasses is like, "I'll scan somebody in the audience," and Michael Ironside goes up, uh, which we'll talk about more in a second. But uh, you have a guy named Dr. Paul Ruth, played by Patrick McGuhan, I think who stumbles upon this guy, Cameron Vale, played by Stephen Lack. Uh, and Vale is kind of found in a shopping mall, um, scanning this woman until she kind of collapses. And so they take him and they recruit him. Uh, this is Consec, the company that uh, Dr. Ruth works for. And they tell him like, there's this rogue scanner who's recruiting these guys into this underground network or other scanners into this underground network named Revic. And we need you to go and find him to infiltrate his organization, to figure out a way to stop him because he's doing things that we don't like and that are going to be bad for the world. Right. Yeah. We can use your, use your scanning for good, or you can use your scanning for evil and people that are really good scanners. I made a joke. This is the movie where the guy's head blows up like Cronenberg's signature visual event in this film. Yeah. So well known is um, that head exploding, the head exploding. And it's done by, by Daryl Revick played by Michael Ironside. And it's the trailer that, that I mentioned. Yeah. Um, you know, I said in the first half of the episode that I knew Kylie wouldn't like crimes of the future. And it was Sunday night and I was like, I got two movies to watch. We really, I really need to watch one of them tonight. Which one do you want to watch? I can tell you, you're not going to like Crimes of the Future. You might be able to get into Scanners. She was like, "Well, let's let's watch the trailer for both." So we watched Crimes of the Future trailer, and she was like, "Yeah, that does not seem like it's for me." Huh. Uh, and then we watched the Scanners trailer, and it's just that scene. And so once we started watching Scanners, like ten minutes into it, if that that scene starts happening, she was like, "Well, I know how this is going to end." Yeah. <laughs> really all that the 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 trailer is but yeah it's like you know he volunteers to be scanned and then he starts scanning the guy back and they get into this kind of psychic duel where eventually revic is able to overpower him psychically and then his head explodes right and wait by the way let's acknowledge how cool the name revic is it's a fucking cool ass name. My, I mean, first of all, Michael Ironside is a cool ass name. And then you've got him playing a guy named Daryl Revick, which is also a cool name. Uh, but yeah, was this film sad. made uh, pre VHS or 
was VHS a thing? What year did it come out? Remind me, I should have known that off the top of my head. This this was around when VHS was around. Okay, so you could have. So at a slumber party or something, sleepover, you could have paused it and, you know, like pause, play, pause, play to see that. And I just want to say for a signature kind of visual effect. I think it plays still really, really well. Uh, You you can see a little bit of duct tape and a little bit, you know, you can see a little bit of the scotch tape behind the scenes, but I I thought it was a great effect. Do you know the whole like lore of that scene? Of course. Yeah. I looked looked it up today, but I was reminded with the shotgun. Yeah. They, they took a, a human head form filled it full of like guts from the butcher shop all sorts of stuff and shot yeah. it with a shotgun yeah close range because because the other explosive devices weren't achieving the results they wanted sure and so this guy literally stood behind it and shot the back of the head with a sh- fucking shotgun yeah. with like people in the room yeah <laughs> you know yeah like the crew was, <laughs> was now, I, will, I will also say and david uh, for real i want to go to you now it, uh, not a lot of gore Mm-mm. outside of this big effect you know, like, no well problem. this th- that scene for sure and you you're right this is an interesting film in fact i have i have a, a funny relationship with this film i love this film but uh when i saw it first as a young kid my dad let me watch this one pretty early on um david gurney tale a- along with the fly you know what i mean like so i don't think he he wasn't thinking he was programming david cronenberg into me at an early age he just saw these films that he thought were kind of crazy and that i would get a kick out (laughs) and i mean what we've learned about you on this podcast was that he was pretty lenient with right 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 but this one was not even that violent i remember actually as a kid seeing it and feeling like after the explosive literally explosive moment of the head explosion there in that you know what 10 minutes into the film there's really very little intense action. I mean, there's some shooting, there's some, you know, chasing that goes on, but not until you get to that final showdown scene between Revic um, and uh, Vale that that you finally get the, you know, that that gets to another moment where things get really intense and really crazy with the eyes and the veins and the, and all that stuff going on. Yeah, I remember um I remember watching, I think I might have double featured this with the brood when I saw it. If I didn't do it the same night, I did them very close together. Um, but I remember kind of viewing this as a uh, a slow as a really slow burn. And I I don't I I don't retain that sentiment having watched it again later. Um, it is to a certain degree, but I think there is, I think there, I think the pace of this movie is a lot better than I gave it credit for the first time, but I think that it, or I, I know it's because you have this again, pun intended explosive moment really early in the film. And I would say that it never quite lives up to that in terms of like gore or shock or like excitement, maybe, um, but it does get close to it in that final scene. But yeah, I think for me going into it that first time I saw it thinking like, Oh, this is going to be crazy. Or like, this is going to be so gory or over the top, or like it's from this guy who's known for, you know, really pushing the boundaries and stuff. And, uh, and thinking like, Oh, that was more tamed than I expected. You know what I mean? But I do, but 
that being said, I do think there is like a lot going on in this movie. And I think there is enough like plot driving it forward, like him. And, you know, so funny to like see this and then watch crimes of the future. Cause that's the order I did this in. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we didn't that, even, you know, then th- that was something that we didn't talk about as much in crimes of the future. And, and now that you say it, like the way that, you know, corporate, um, you know, the, the corporate capitalism is a big player in these films, right? It's about these corporations that are trying to own this technology. In this case, I'm trying to remember what was the the firm in uh, Scanners? Carbon, Amal Tech, or something like that. It's like a- y- yes, Amalgamate. Amalgamate, yeah. It's it's them who are sold to Consec. Consec, Consec yeah, then- right. But in and in uh, Crimes of the Future, we have the you know the corporation that's that, that's trying to kind of and the, and we also have that government office that's sort of this strange. I don't know. He yeah. he's very interested in the bureaucracy of new technologies and human evolutions and and strangely can find a way to make bureaucracy very compelling. And <laughs> <laughs> I feel, um, but, but, always- but it's, but it's, but it's interesting because we see a character in here. I believe the character's name is Ben Pierce, who is this guy who was a scanner who tried to kill his whole family, was institutionalized, was released. Uh, and he had kind of found a way to uh, quiet the voices mm-hmm. in his head via his art and to be able to like cope with this uh, kind of, weird ability that he has through his art and his art is certainly not as grotesque as crimes of the future but definitely certainly odd you know in this kind Mm -hmm. of idea of grappling with the progression of humanity through art is as present in this as it is in crimes of the future and they're 40 plus they're almost exactly 40 years apart from one another yeah, a clear I, through line in his career. Cronenberg has a target typically for the, you know, social criticism in almost every film. So certainly the three that we've watched here on the show, yeah. uh, Videodrome, uh, the kind of maybe fear of unfettered media. Uh, right. Here, I think the, the part of it is not just corporate culture, but um the the medical like pharmaceutical culture yeah uh, because pharma. we learned that the scanners scanning uh was man-made and mm-hmm. uh with a drug Ca- caused was, by the drug that then treats them right exactly the, the drug if 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 given to someone with the scanning ability a scanner uh quiets it quiets the voices that they hear in public and quiets your ability to to do it so the first thing that happens when you are captured is they give you this so that you can't then use your powers to 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 get away or hurt somebody yeah um but there's an interesting scene where he he picks up a a female kind of cohort i don't remember the character's name off the top of my head austral something austral or ostrich right oh yeah So, so she's a scanner and then Kim, they go Kim to Obrist. right. Obrist. So they use. Then it's determined that they can use their scanner ability to merge with a computer, just like they can with a human. The central nervous system, mm-hmm. and they get a list of doctors that are you know using this medication, and uh, they go to one of the offices at random, and the unborn child begins scanning 
Yes. Her. Yeah, that show is crazy. And Bad ass. That is one of the best scenes ever. I, I got scanned I in the waiting room. Who, who, who was it? The, the expected mother? No, the unborn child. Yeah. And then you start to learn like the whys and the hows that mm-hmm. you have in a horror film, usually in the third act somewhere is how it a, all started and why it's all happening. Yeah. You, you get a nice chunk of exposition. From sure. The, from the Revit character. So it turns out that Revic and our protagonist are brothers, brothers and yeah. that Dr. Ruth is their father. One mm-hmm. you know, badass of, twist, a crazy twist. One of, to me, like the most profound scenes that, I don't think um, they necessarily do like a ton with other than just this line of dialogue, but in um, when he find when um, why did I already blank on his name? Cameron Vale. Uh, when he finds this kind of group of scanners that are not in Revix, like underground community the good guys if you will yeah but also aren't like part of any kind of corporate they're just kind of like this kind of hippy dippy little commune right in this apartment he finds them and so they start scanning all together and create this kind of like collective consciousness uh which is kind of cool and doesn't necessarily like go anywhere but it does give us this well i think isn't that the statement there of like here's this really positive way of using this thing that might actually advance humankind. And it's the thing that's impossible because they can't even just find like a moment of peace and solitude to be able to do such a thing. It's commentary. Yeah, sure. That's, that is, that is a very good point. Um, That is what it is. I, I overlooked it, but, but uh, no, I know, but the, but the part of it that to me that I focused on and honed in on was like, they're, doing this thing where they're kind of all merging their minds together, this collective consciousness, and then Revix gang kind of busts in with shotguns and start shooting people. And then the Kim Ostrich, is that her name? I'm going to fucking forget it. Oberst. Oberst. Why do I Wait, no, Obrist. 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 She, she, as they're escaping in this like school bus saying is like, I know, I know now what it feels like to die. Right. And I was like, fuck, that's crazy. Yeah. Like, I don't know. For some reason, that scene like hit me harder than any of the other ones, and it was just like, I guess maybe like subconsciously, it's because it was this moment that was supposed to be positive, and that was supposed to be, you know, working towards the betterment of themselves and their community, and because of this act of violence, was so quickly tainted and. Mm-hmm. Uh, uprooted and 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 turned into like a, oh now i have this absolutely horrifying experience that nobody alive is supposed to be able to understand and i, and, I don't think i've seen this in 20 years or more so when i watched it the only thing that i really looked up besides how did they do the head thing the exploding head was tell me more about this lead actor the cameron Vale character something lang right and it turns out that he Got the job, Stephen, but he was a painter. He was not a professional actor, and he got the job because Cronenberg liked his piercing blue eyes, which is a key, which is a key part of the yeah. But the the third act, but that if there is criticism of this film, that's kind of 
lasted through time. It's that he gives a very wooden one note performance. Deadpan. And I completely agree. Yeah. Uh, one reviewer that I read went on to say, imagine scanners with a vibrant lead actor in that role. It would have been a tran- even more transcendent. Mm. Well, but we, that said, well, but I, I still but, love this movie. I like this movie very, very much. This is a double not failure there's no failure to to wipe away to wash away from my mouth this is a double success quadruple success oh, i don't want to tip my hand on the striker sorry yeah th- th- i mean i i like the performance I- i'll kind of go back to what i said with the last film i think it's one of the things that cronenberg likes to do is like show us humans affected in these ways that really change their emotional structure like the the way that they operate did it in crimes of the future was doing it here in scanners i mean part of that character cameron vale was that he was sort of you know he had no history he he didn't have experience to build upon he wasn't he was lost and he was completely um you know assaulted by humanity because he was constantly being assaulted by people's thoughts and everything in a way that wasn't under his control yeah i mean and that he was a homeless man that the two ladies at the beginning are like oh look at that disgusting wretch you know right he he would think he's almost like schizophrenic i would imagine like right hearing voices i've got no place in society i can't adjust to 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 being so yeah homelessness or um at least being you know cast out of society is my only place to be right i get, I, I get the role i just didn't like the actor so much i hear you no i i understand it doesn't bother me at all i i think it works for the role i think it's i i think th- sure could you have cast somebody else maybe but i think th- this works fine for what it is and the important thing ironside is amazing the guy is badass he, I, I wish that he had more of a career than he he ultimately did, because I feel like a film like this just kind of proves to you it, he's only on screen for maybe a total of 10, 15 minutes. Right. But they're so good. Yeah, he's he's great in it. And he just Patrick McGuhan, too. Mm-hmm. He's yeah, he's also pretty good. But I feel like Ironside really steals the show. He just had, oh, yeah, he has the face for a villain, you know? Yeah. He looks menacing. Like there are a couple other character actors whose faces are popping into my head and whose names I can't pull out of the hat right now that are just, they just have that look where it's like, you know, when they're on screen, they're a bad guy, they're menacing, they're intimidating. Well, well, let me tell you a few titles that you can find Michael Ironside Total Recall, Top Gun Original, Nobody. Free Willy. I mean, this guy, you know, he he does. Wait, nobody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Starship Troopers. I, I I didn't but get, nobody the I didn't get into it, but it's on his uh, the Bob Odenkirk movie credits. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's the the dad, right? The father in law who he works for or something like that. No, right? Or no, the guy no. who's boss. Look, yeah, I'll look into it. But he's one of those guys, Michael Ironside. I'll look it up that you uh, you know, his face. He's in everything. Yeah, mm-hmm. he, he's got a lot of credits. Yeah, but 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 he was. Yeah, at, at, at but, best, a character actor. But it's fun in the 80s to watch him get a lead role like this. Yeah, he's really great in it. No, you know Early, what? I guess he is the father-in-law. I, that's what I thought. Yeah, who who he Bob is, Odenkirk works for? Yeah, he is completely unrecognizable in that role. He just grew I mean, up. yeah, he's like got old and a older, little overweight. You know? All right, um, but I think that scratch the overweight part. That's that's a judgment that I, I should be giving nobody at all. Sure. Uh, I said in the first half about you know some of the deadpan performances in Crimes of the Future, and I was like, oh, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Cameron Vale is who I was <laughs> talking about. I mean, he is really just a, I'm reading the line. 
kind of guy, you know? And like, you're right, David, it works because we find out at a certain point that he just like, doesn't remember it. Like he doesn't have any memories from his childhood. So it does work. And that is just a credit to Cronenberg and his ability, uh, to cast somebody with no experience in a role that they can still pull off. And I'm sure, you know, there was plenty of on set, like him helping uh, this guy through this whole thing. Right. You know, um, helping a first time actor in a feature film. Well, he had been, hadn't he at least been in a couple other films before? I, I mean, I don't think he was primarily an actor, but I think he had a couple other He's not somebody that I recognize. Uh, no, not not he he never built a big career, but I but I do think he had a couple films before this one. So he had had the experience on set, he had done things, but you're right. I mean, working with a relatively amateur who who didn't go on to have a career. I mean, he but but also like he is the lead. Like yeah. this guy Stephen Lack is the yeah. lead of the film. And right. you know, for, for for someone is, you know, maybe have some experience, but not a leading man on his, in, in his own right to be able to carry this film is, is impressive. Uh, the scene where he uh, connects with the computer is fantastic. Seeing all that shit blow up and that guy like get got, you know, mm-hmm. great scene. Uh, when the bus goes into the record store, I mean, that made, oh. made my skin crawl more than most of crimes of the future. Hey, <laughs> did, did you notice? So I saw super tramp. I saw, um and uh yeah there was a lot there was a dutch guy who i'd never even heard of before that that was uh howard and his last name was brood really but i don't think it was any connection necessarily yeah that that was that was an interesting scene um yeah and you know one so i i think my kind of closing remarks on this are the scene at the, the the final third act scene where they're having this like psychic showdown is an unbelievably ambitious thing to write into a screenplay because in general when it comes to screen storytelling it's hard to um communicate inner dialogue of characters right you have to have like them talking to somebody else in the room to get like exposition out or to like express their feelings to or whatever. Cause you can't like hear the inner thoughts of a character it would be like kind of unnatural or whatever. And so to have like a fight scene essentially that happens in the minds of two people is a big fucking swing. Right. Uh, and something that should not work in my, in my opinion, I, I think 99 out of a hundred directors fuck this scene up. Right. And somehow, I don't know how, cause even as I'm watching it, I'm like, this is cheesy, but it's working for me and it works somehow. I don't know. I don't know how I, I think it's, well, it's because of, I, I think it's, it's the pacing of it. It's the way that he hasn't shown much, you that much. So like, it's such an exciting moment to see these two guys show down and, the stuff that is happening, it's kind of subtle in a way, but it's also grotesque. I don't I it's it's a beautiful scene. I it, I, I agree. It it feels like something that so easily could have been mishandled and turned into something laughable yeah. that, that he's able to pull it off and that it still works today. So good. So good. And, and, and there's so and, many and, directors, actors, 
but I'm going to go directors who, when we do a double feature episode like this, I go, God, I need to see more. I need to see more. I really want to put this on my Alamo draft house list. If there's some Cronenberg that pops up or you can see it on the big screen, that's the only real complaint I have about both of these films is that you're relegated to watching them on the largest screen that you own. Yeah. That's or, true. or that's if true. you're at work, yeah, it's not even the largest screen you own. It's just the largest screen available. Yeah. So, you know, the, the color palette on this, the, 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 the action cinematography and attention to detail, I think in both films, really it's a, it's a big screen experience. So I'll, I'll keep my eyes, I'll keep my eyes open and alert the two of you anytime Cronenberg's coming to town. Yeah. If that, if that happens a draft house in there, but um, I think my kind of conclusion about um, that final scene and like how I felt about it, as I just described in, in terms of Cronenberg as a artist and in the kind of breadth of his work that we've looked at over the course of this podcast is that he occupies such an interesting lane in filmmaking where like scanners scanners at best should probably be a B movie that you hunt down on VHS, but somehow he, somehow he elevates it into, I, I don't know. He, he does two things at the same time that I don't in, entirely understand how he does. He is making these kind of like B movie, midnight movie type of things while also being like an incredibly adept and high level filmmaker. Like, both of those things are happening at once in almost everything I've ever seen him do. And it with maybe, you know, his like two thousands work where he gets into more like just straight up dramatic territory with Eastern promises, history of violence, cosmopolis, stuff like that. But in terms of his like horror work, he's, he's two filmmakers that are coexisting at the same time in the same body and the same films that make total sense in either place. Like whether it's like at the con film festival or whether it's at a midnight, you know, kind of screening of whether it's an underground, like art house film, you know, theater or whatever, or it's just like your buddy's, you know, viewing room or whatever. Uh, and it's so, it's just so odd to me how they both work at, at, at the same time and how they both do each thing to such a high level and to such a great effect. Like it works perfectly as a B midnight movie. It works perfectly as like a, you could watch it in film school. Like you could, this could be shown in a class while you're trying to get like your, uh, fucking MFA and like filmmaking or whatever, you know? And it, and more importantly, it should be that the, these the, Cronenberg does something. I, I mean, we, we, we've, We've said it multiple times in many different ways on this episode. He does something that nobody else does. Um, it, even those people who follow in his footsteps don't do it quite the same way. Like his son does a great thing, but it's still not quite the David Cronenberg thing. And 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 that's why it's so amazing when you do reach back and and you see one of these of you know one of these of his, his celebrated films which all of his films are celebrated on some level there's fast company maybe an exception but other than that um there's stuff to be found in almost all these and i i look at it and i think for me with david cronenberg when we're thinking like in terms of a film that's so economical that has so much uh for you to dig into 
and yet does it with like the minimum amount of flair impressive just every time truly um and you know another thing that i find impressive is uh this brains uh from drecker brewing company uh it really has just like everything that i could ever possibly want in it flavor wise mango strawberry pineapple and coconut and uh you know one of the things i love about drecker is that they have just such a robust kind of like um info sheet almost on their cans it gives you the malt bill it gives you the hops it gives you the flora in this case uh well i guess it's always flora but there's lactobacillus culture which i'm guessing is like lactose and house ale yeast but then when they do something like this they're you know they're self-aware and they're kind of cheeky about it and so it says gimmicks they do it on the on the smoothie stuff they'll do it on some of the other uh things they do but it's mango crazy stuff more mango strawberry more strawberry pineapple more pineapple coconut more coconut sea salt lactose and vanilla bean uh and this one says attention contains a significant amount of fruit so please keep cold at all times separation is normal can give the can a gentle roll to before opening our uh, local beer emporium clearly did not heed that warning um but the can didn't explode they had to reserve their refrigerator for the corona I don't give me fucking started. About I won't. The sorry. Um, so or for the Molson Canadian. True. It was in the fridge. It, w- it was in the fridge. My, my only problem with this beer, and it is such a subjective problem, is that pineapple and coconut and mango aren't my favorite. So what the fuck? I know, right? Because you just said the opposite. But that does not prevent me from knowing that what they're doing here, while gimmicky, and the smoothie sours have kind of, I think, peaked in kind of a curiosity and it began to decline. I agree with that. When it's done well, it still is done well. And this thing does indeed pour like a smoothie you'd get at the smoothie shop. It's thick, it's fruity, and it's masterfully created. The lactose is perfect. Sea salt is on the ingredient list. And I can't taste salt, but I can. I know that there's enough in there for it to like... Pop, pop, balance the pop. sweetness a yeah. little bit. I will say that the majority of what I'm getting is strawberry. Well, I'm um, getting the pineapple mostly. I'm getting the pineapple a bit. Um, maybe a hint of the coconut that mm-hmm. kind of is aided by the vanilla bean. Yeah. Um, but it's it is, delicious. Is in my mind. No, you're right. Strawberries. Um, yeah. But yeah, love it. I mean, sorry, you know, you're not here, David. <laughs> I, I'm sure it sounds fun. I'm sure you'll be able to drink and a kick ass. Whenever you get back, go to our local beer emporium and lick some off the counter because they'll (laughs) it will have exploded. Yeah. (laughs) Buy me some and put it in a refrigerator. How about that? Okay. Uh, So that sounded delicious, and I'm not surprised. We we always like Drecker and uh, and the other brains versions that we've had have been great. Um, You know this other version of this IPA that Bellflower Brewing does. Let me put it this way, okay? If if Bellflower Brewing was a marriage, okay, and and it was me married to you know some some other individual, and we needed to separate, right? And we were splitting up the the kids, and the sun and the moon were among these kids. There would be a real custody battle going on because I would not let these two siblings slip through my fingers without a real fight. 
And and I guess that would have tied in better if we were doing a Kramer versus Kramer episode or, you know, something with a custody battle. But I felt like I, th- that was the best metaphor I could go for because these two siblings belong together. They're delicious um, on their own. It's great. They both have a great light body. I think that the Pilsner, there is the caramel malt in there too. I get, you get a little sweetness, but it's pretty clean. And what I love is that you have, you know, some of what you're talking about with uh, these New Zealand hops, I feel like is that kind of, especially with the Nelson Sauvin, almost like kind of a grape-like flavor that comes out with that, like a, a white wine grape. And I'm getting that here. So it's not like that citrusy fruitiness that I was getting on the the citrusy tropical. It's a little bit more, again, what, I don't know what you call grape, but you know, it, it has something that's just as fruity, but in a slightly different direction, delicious. I want to have these two together. It's a cool concept to put these two beers in a four pack where you get two of each. Uh, Bellflower Brewing out of Portland, Maine, my first uh, visit there. Totally impressed. The Greek goddess Thea bore the Titan Hyperion, three shining children, David, Helios, the sun, Eos, the dawn, and Selene, the moon. So, wow, they just need to throw the dawn in. That's right. Uh, and not the dishwashing detergent. <laughs> I had something I was going to say till your analysis of that beer and Joe just threw me for such a fucking loop hey, by bringing look, Greek mythology. I know, into this. I know more about Greek mythology than <laughs> that the common I man. totally forgot what the fuck I was going to say. Oh. Uh, what a fucking success tonight. Cronenberg doing a Cronenberg episode. Was- th- th- I was so excited to record this because I just I mean, I loved Crimes of the Future. It was so fun to finally get around to seeing it and, and seeing him do this thing again. I love and Scanners. The, so I, good. I love Crimes of the Future, but I don't know if I'm going to go with you on fun. <laughs> I don't know what that says. Is fun in a film nerd way. Fun, fun in like you so rarely get to see films that different and strange and, and to see David Cronenberg do another one that's totally worthwhile. It doesn't feel like a retread. It doesn't feel like a guy going back and playing his greatest hits. He's still got questions to ask, still got provocations to be made. I love it. Speaking of, you know, his reception at the Cannes Film Festival, I got, I had some Titan vibes while watching this thing. A modern film where you're showing me things that are quote unquote disturbing, but but they're really about so much more than that. And you can even go back in scanners and say the exact same thing. Videodrome as well. Yeah, a video drum as well. And I think that's, I mean, that was one of the things when I was watching Scanners, especially that I was like, man, this guy is really so interested in the way that like technology augments our lives mm-hmm. and like the and it and it reminded me of the kind of prescient nature of videodrome of this idea that we were going to stop going by like our actual names and start having these like monikers that we use for ourselves which we do now. I mean, like, you know, I I for the last 10 years have known people that will refer to others by their Instagram handles because they've never met in real life or whatever. Or when they do meet in real life, they're like, oh, you're so-and-so and and use their Instagram handle as a way to refer to them. You're jello X shot. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, you know, stuff like that. So it's all right. So he, he, I don't know. He's just a very interesting guy has a lot going on up there. Um, but we really hope that uh, some, if not all of you listening to this podcast have seen 
at least one, if not both of these films. And it really uh, brings us back to the thing that we like about this podcast the most, which is that the conversation does not end when the episode ends. It continues on all of your uh, favorite or preferred social media channels. You can find us on Twitter at beer movie show, Instagram at beer and a movie, facebook.com slash beer and movie TX. Uh, over the last couple of months, beer and a movie podcast.com has really become our home base for all things beer and a movie. You can find these great curated collections of episodes that Joe's put together, whether it be director focus, which I'm sure there will be a Cronenberg section coming up soon now that we've done a little bit more of his work, uh, or it's all horror October or, you know, kind of different themed uh, episodes are, are um, all of our Nick Cage centric episodes you can find uh, kind of curated together in one place. So whatever it is that you're looking for film wise, you can find there. You can also find a link to support us financially and get some bonus content every single week. Um, on the website, just click the Patreon button, or you can go to patreon.com slash beer movie podcast. $5 a month gets you a bonus episode every single week where, yeah, we'll talk about some other films we're watching and talk about some other beers we're drinking, but we'll also talk about the TV shows we're watching, the music that we're listening to, what's going on with us uh, outside of all of that as well. That's a great time. And please do not sleep on uh, the Discord channel where a lot of robust conversations are happening around the films that we're discussing after the episode has come out already. Um, had a lot of really good conversations over there with some of the most diehard beer in a movie listeners. So uh, don't sleep on that. There's a really great like meme uh, channel in there as well uh, that our buddy Josh is just firing on all, all cylinders at all times. Uh, and of course, as well uh, on the website, you can find a link to our merch. Uh, you can go to tpublic.com slash user slash beer in a movie, or again, just click the link on our website and you can get shirts, you can get hoodies, you can get mugs, stickers, all sorts of stuff. Uh, some great design work done by our buddy, Jake Sazone over there. Uh, I know that I love my beer in a movie tea. It's very soft and very comfortable and very form fitting as well. Uh, and I know I'm going to be copping some winter wear as, uh, the fall months approach. Uh, so don't sleep on that. Uh, if you're listening to an Apple podcast, rate and subscribe, it helps the algorithm do what it do. I've already been doing this for way too fucking long. So we're going to wrap it up. Uh, this has been another surgical episode of beer in a movie until next time. I have friends. I don't want them, but I have them. Thank you.